Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the podcast, I have Maurizio Di Bartolomeo, President and Chief Strategy Officer for Ledin Inc. Ledin is a Bitcoin lender that will allow Bitcoin owners to use their coin for collateral in order to free up cash. And with that, here's my interview with Maurizio. Hello, Maurizio. Hey, Jason. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for taking the time today. Oh, thanks for having us on. It's, uh, it's our pleasure. My pleasure. So Maurizio of uh, Ledin Inc., tell us about Ledin. Great. Yeah, sure. Ledin is a company that we founded to provide traditional financial services around digital assets. And uh, we noticed as digital assets began evolving and becoming more used by the mainstream that although there was uh, relative ease to buy and sell these digital assets, there was uh, little you could do with them other than that. And so we saw that there was a big need to create debt products and savings products around this new asset class. And that's what we built that for. Okay. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's, let's talk about your history and what did you do before this and what led you to it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, I'm originally from Venezuela, which is where I grew up. I uh, came to Canada in uh, 2003 to do my university. And uh, the reason I came was prompted largely because there was a new government in Venezuela uh, run by Hugo Chavez, and a lot of people, when he comes into office, started getting worried about the direction that the country was going to take. So preemptively, I, you know, I was encouraged by my family. I also wanted to, to study abroad myself. So I came to Canada, and I worked here after a few years of getting graduated. Once I, and I went back home after I worked in Canada for two years to work with my father. Once I was there in Venezuela, I was back in Venezuela, Chavez passed away. And at that moment, the economy and the whole system started falling on itself. And one of the things that stuck with me from witnessing that experience was the fact that banking essentially was no longer available to the average Venezuelan person. And then the the amount of controls and restrictions that were placed around people's money got to a point where it was very difficult for you to save because hyperinflation did away with your savings. It was very difficult for you to borrow because the inability to save made it difficult for you to save to buy assets. And so without assets, you become a harder person to finance. And so it essentially created this trap whereby people were hijacked completely from the financial system and the banking system in particular. And it was a big feat to essentially do any transaction let alone you know, buying an asset or, or just saving in general. So around that time, I came across Bitcoin and my youngest brother was using it to mine. And so as I started learning more and more about Bitcoin and I realized that it was this really amazing technological breakthrough in the sense that it is a, a digital way to send and transfer assets or digital value without relying on a trusted third party. And this basically did away with that need that you had for the bank to authorize every action that you wanted to do. And as we started peeling back the layers, we said, this new technology can really have a deep, deep impact 
in the lives of people living in these very restricted regimes. So I had stayed in touch with Lenin's co-founder, Adam, who I met when I did university here in Canada. And so we identified this massive need for this product. And we both knew that we had very strong networks in Toronto. And so we've dis we decided to give it a go and, and launch this company from a world-class country and platform and the, with the goal of perfecting everything around compliance and the mechanics around these financial services in a jurisdiction such as Canada. And from here, essentially catapult the service to countries where it can have a bigger impact as far as, you know, it will materially change people's lives who were not able to call it save and borrow. And now they're able to do so at North American terms. Excellent. So, you know, it's interesting. And we talked about this before we got on air. The, um, did you actually see any real usage of Bitcoin in day-to-day -day life in Venezuela when all this was happening? Uh, yeah. And that's, that's a really great question because I have a, a couple of very fun anecdotal stories. And so before we started Ledin, I was basically, at first it started as a hobby, helping my younger brother mine. Then I got some of my own equipment and I, I very, we were very open around, you know, with the fact that we knew about what Bitcoin was and how Bitcoin could help people in Venezuela. And we immediately after we discovered it and we, we got better at mining, we started helping people around us, like our friends, people that used to be our coworkers in our other companies in Venezuela. They basically clued into how, how good of a business this was and all the opportunities that it could open. And so we slowly started teaching Man, it started with a few people and it snowballed into hundreds where we were going to people's, literally people's basements and kitchens and telling them how to set up their mining rigs so that, you know, they could do it properly. So from there, some of our friends actually went on to become full-time, you know, minor, call it consultants in that they would go and install, you know, farms for people. They would fix people when the miners went down for bugs. Ethereum mining is very big in Venezuela, so, you know, and those machines tend to be more complex to maintain. So a whole industry arose from this mining activity. And I found it actually very interesting because the people that were helping us do the technical support of some of the rigs, they started charging Bolivares like everybody else did. And then very, very quickly, I think it was in a matter of months, they started saying, hey, guys, I'd like to start getting paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you have, you have, it's interesting we've talked about it, and I've talked about it before, that in Western society poo-pooed the idea of using cryptocurrency as an actual currency because of the volatility. You know, volatility is a relative concept, right? So Venezuela is definitely one of the use cases where, frankly, the volatility of Bitcoin may have been preferable to the local currency's volatility. Yeah, and also, just to highlight that point, there is this idea of censorship resistance does play a huge, huge role in how people use this. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. So in Venezuela, we had, so slowly over time, most qualified professionals in Venezuela have been slowly making the decision to leave Venezuela for a different country where they can get better compensated for their skills. Mm -hmm. And so there's been, the brain drain is real. And, you know, I've seen it firsthand. I myself, I'm a product of the brain drain. I left because of the change in regimes. But, you know, a couple of other examples. So the people that we used to, there were two people that we used to employ in my father's company back in Venezuela. And, you know, up in, they, they lasted up until six months ago in Venezuela when they, when, uh, you know, in the end they decided, they came to my family and they asked for, and get this, they asked for a, a $100 loan so that they could 
they could buy the bus ticket to go to Peru. Wow. And we obviously lent the money. We, we actually never, she offered to pay it back. We, we, didn't, we didn't accept it. But the interesting thing about her story was that the way she decided to transport the little assets she had left to Peru was she bought this gold, a couple of pieces of gold jewelry. Yep, right? the old, yep, the old currency smuggled by using jewelry. Yeah, so get this. She gets on her bus in the border to Colombia to get through to Colombia to keep going to Peru. National Guard stops her, takes mm. her gold, takes all of her jewelry. Yep, they know that that's they know that's where people are hiding it. It's yeah. uh, you know it's funny like uh, you know we heard of seeing a T-shirt say I'm smuggling Bitcoin. Right. It's, it's definitely a better way to cross borders in many cases. For sure. And so the same story happened with another gentleman that had saved, I believe it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like five or $600 in actual dollar bills. Same story, got taken away at customs. And I know of a couple of guys that they actually were able to buy a plane ticket, but this happens also in the airports. You know, there's videos and footage of customs officers in Venezuela opening suitcases and literally taking things out of it. But the interesting part was the people that I had helped or that I had learned or come to know that were in the Bitcoin industry or in Bitcoin space, call it, you know, whether they were guys that knew how to set up and maintain mining rigs or they were guys that had a strong network of buyers and sellers. So most of the people that had industry experience were able to move, transport their wealth and continue carrying out whatever activity they were doing around Bitcoin in Venezuela, but in, the, in this new host country. So this idea that Bitcoin actually not only allowed people to take their assets from one place to another, but reestablish themselves in this new place around this new industry is just so real and true. And I was having a couple, I had a conversation in Twitter yesterday with Zach Vole, who uh, he runs the, the coin pod and it was actually a pretty interesting exchange because we were talking about the hard realities around Bitcoin in that, yes, it enables so much freedom, but it, it does also enable a couple of edge cases of bad actors. And, you know, a perfect example is Venezuela and the Petro and trying to avoid sanctions that way. And I think there is a disconnect because when a bad guy does something, that he, that he can use Bitcoin for, he celebrates it, right? Like these dictator types will go out and say, hey, we're going to raise this money through the Petro and we're going to do away with all these sanctions that you guys are trying to impose on us. And that's actually very easy to get upset at, right? Because it's very much in your face. But what you don't see are the thousands, if not millions of people that are being able to migrate or earn a bounty reward in a censorship-resistant asset there are people in Venezuela, young people that know how to program and they, can, they know how to earn bounties and they can sit at home in Caracas and literally earn their way out of that system by earning Bitcoin, which was not something they could do before. And so I think there's this big need for us in the community, in the Bitcoin community, to sort of celebrate and highlight the good attributes so that we can drown some of the voices of these authoritarian guys that are using Bitcoin to get away with bad things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's the next stuff, but you saw the real life implications for it um, and, and the use cases for it. So lending, it makes sense that if we're going to slowly recreate the world of banking in the crypto sphere, 
you know, the first thing you're going to do is transactional and, and the ability to, to buy, to, well, to store and buy that currency. But the next thing, yeah, using it for, for lending is definitely going to be the big next step. So tell us about the journey to, to basically create this company. Yeah, I would love to. So as I, was, as I mentioned to you, you know, the experience in Venezuela made it very, I was made very much aware that there was a big use case for the underlying technology, which is Bitcoin. And the fact that there is a strong user base and an actual use case for this technology makes or made us feel that Bitcoin was a, a good long-term asset, right? And it was, it was effectively, and it is effectively, it created a new asset class on its own, right? It created digital scarcity. And so now we created programmable money that is censorship resistant. So there is a strong need and use case for that globally. And we felt very comfortable that this asset class was going to continue to grow. And so from being in the Bitcoin industry at first when I was mining, and I had a lot of friends that ran Bitcoin businesses, the problem kept coming up time and again. You run your Bitcoin business, you have your revenues coming in in digital assets, and then you have this element of real life expenses. And over the long run, this whole concept of selling your Bitcoin to pay for your expenses with the expectation of buying your Bitcoin again is it's just burdensome, right? Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to time. It's not efficient if you are, you know, you have to constantly be monitoring the price moves. And so there was really one of the biggest challenges we first saw around Bitcoin was that there was nobody around at the time that would accept these digital assets as assets in the sense that you couldn't post them to get any type of debt. It was as if you didn't have any assets or if you didn't own anything. And we saw that as a big problem, particularly in countries like Canada, where there was a sufficiently established ecosystem by way of exchanges that provided that type of liquidity. And just the fact that Bitcoin had been around for a couple of boom-bust cycles, but it was still liquidly traded with an upwards trend line, we saw that as, a, as an encouraging sign. And, and we've basically took the stand that Bitcoin was an asset and it should be considered an asset. And so our task at that point became, how do we create a system that can make investors comfortable in lending against this new asset class? And what are the steps we need to take so that we are able to raise institutional type of money or with the goals of getting to institutional type of funding so that we could pass on these true beneficial interest rates to our clients, both in Canada and abroad. And so what Adam and I set forward to do was essentially that, is creating the mechanisms and the thresholds and the, part, and the exchange relationships that were necessary for investors to feel comfortable with the level of risk at which we were lending at. And uh, we did that successfully. We raised our first round. And uh, the product has been really, really well received in the market. So. I think looking back, it was, it was a good place to start. And uh, it's definitely a, a great place for us to continue building out this whole suite of services. Excellent. So take me through the client experience. Someone wants to uh, use their Bitcoin as collateral for a loan. What does that look like? Sure. So the first thing you do right now is you go to our website. And our website has this very intuitive calculator on it where you can essentially say, I want to borrow $1,000 and the, the, our calculator just tells you what's the corresponding amount of Bitcoin that you will need to post as collateral. So essentially, you go to our site, you see the calculator, you figure out how much you can borrow from 
the, the coin that you hold. And then there's, you know, you just click apply now. The enrollment process takes about a minute just to get your account set up. And then the application process for the loan takes less than five minutes if you have your supporting documentation handy. And it's a pretty standard process, standard to those who have been, you know, to, who have signed up for a call at a Canadian exchange service. So you log in, you provide your, your contact information, then we'll ask you for a proof of your identification and a proof of your address. And essentially, you'll be able to apply for a loan right then and there. We process every loan within 24 hours and we fund every loan into, in Canada within 24 hours of approval. So essentially, you can have gone through the entire application process within 10 minutes on our website, and you could potentially be getting your funds deposited in your account 24 hours after you submitted your application. So, Excellent. yeah. So you're, clearly you're not lending one for one because, you know, there is such a thing as volatility to worry about. So you're, I believe it's 50%, is it? Or how does that work? That is correct. So right now we're lending at 50% loan to value. So mm -hmm. you'll be able to borrow about 50% of the spot price of your Bitcoin. And the reason we do that is really risk management. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the elements that we, uh, the over collateralization of the loan itself was one of the elements that gets investors or the people that are putting up the debt funds uh, comfortable. So then the additional piece of that is, is we have to have that, call it buffer, to be able to manage the short-term swings in Bitcoin price. One of the big things I, that I think is worth uh, highlighting is that we are in no way incentivized to margin call any of our borrowers. So as asset-backed lending, we are taking collateral security on the funds that we're lending out based on the underlying asset. So the security for the funds that we have lent out is the value of the Bitcoin that is posted as collateral. And as that value fluctuates, we just need to have the right buffers so that if you take out a loan today and the price of Bitcoin moves tomorrow, then we're not having to call you and say, hey, there's been volatilities, right? So we really wanted to set a threshold that would make clients happy as far as the funds that they're getting based on their, on their collateral, as well as gets our investors comfortable with the potential price moves that may happen and our ability to realize the security in a down scenario. Yep, and I mean, infeasibly as volatility hopefully lessens over time, that number can be adjusted as you so desire. But it looks like you guys are lending out on collateral up to a million dollars. Is that about, is that right? Yeah, so that's our maximum loan size right now. And uh, the funny thing is because Bitcoin is such a universal asset or, or global asset, to us, it's really about this great opportunity to treat everybody the same as far as a client profile, right? So for us, because you know a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, it doesn't really matter if it comes from Venezuela or if it comes from Canada, we can offer the same level of service to people that just have Bitcoin. So what kind of rates are we looking at here for, uh, for borrowing? We actually offer the best terms and interest rates in Canada. And we pride ourselves in always leading the industry rather than following it. We were very focused on basically creating a very compelling offering to the client. Our interest rates today are 1% per month or 12% annualized. And we have a 2% administration fee for every new loan that comes in. So you're not exactly, you know, a secured line of credit, but nevertheless, it is a volatile currency. So I guess 
I mean, it's interesting. So you put in a couple buffers, the interest rates, one of them, in addition to that, you have the, um, the loan to value ratio. And frankly, it's, uh, it's, you know, this is not something people should be collateralizing for a quick five for a quick 50 bucks that they need, right? This is a longer term play for them or a more intermediate term play to, to, to get out of the currency. So, I mean, so yeah, it makes sense. So you mentioned before we started that you guys have been working on some new deals that are going to hopefully bring your service to more people. Uh, you want to, uh, clarify or fill us in on what that looks like? Definitely. We're going to be making an announcement very uh, shortly about our first partnership, but we are working on a, a new offering that will make our loans available to clients in existing brokerages or exchanges. And so how that will work is say you have, call it one Bitcoin sitting in an exchange in Canada, and you then get a notification saying, hey, by the way, you're pre-approved for an additional, call it $3,000 cash balance so that you can do as you please with it. You can purchase more assets with it. You can withdraw them and pay down your credit card bill if you so choose. But essentially, we're going to be working with select partners to make our loans available to their clients. And this is a a real win-win for everybody because the partners will get more activity, the clients will get a, a great deal on uh, additional cash if they need it, and we just get to show more people what we can do. Absolutely, I mean, it's a great, you said it, so you said it perfectly, it's a win-win. You guys are non-competitive businesses, and frankly, I think at the same time, a lot of these exchanges or, or custody places might be interested in having this kind of deal simply because it's not taking the crypto necessarily off their books, right? You're, they, can, they can handle, I'm not sure if you're letting them handle the custody of it, but if they do, that's, you know, that's more assets on their books that are sitting there. So that, that's a good position for them to be in as well. Yeah, no, it, it is a true win-win. And, and just to clarify, we will have all of the collateralized assets during the partnership are going to be sitting with, with Ledin. We mm-hmm. hold, and I think it is a, okay. this is a good set way to, yep. to introduce the fact that we hold all of clients' assets in institutional-grade cold storage facility. Mm-hmm. So we're not a fractional reserve lender in any way. Every mm-hmm. single one of our clients can log in today and not only see their Bitcoin balance on our site, but they can actually ping that Bitcoin balance through a third-party blockchain explorer and see where that Bitcoin is sitting at all times on the network. Excellent. Good, good. Well, I mean, it's interesting because they're, you know, the ecosystem you guys are building out, it's everybody's, everybody's at this point, they got to work on one thing. You know, there's not enough, uh, none of you guys are gaining that, well, some of you gain scale, but to worry about trying to be the all-encompassing bank just doesn't make sense. So I think partnership is a great strategy for all of you. Yeah, I'd have to say it's been a really great reception. People in, in this space in particularly are, are, or in particular are very collaborative, I find. And I think that's largely a function of where the industry is. I think the bear market really draws the best in the good companies that are in a space because it gets you, you know, really thinking of ways to be creative so that you can make the most use out of your resources. And so a perfect example is this idea that we already have a great product. Can we complement it with somebody else's product and make a win-win relationship here? And I think a lot of people or I guess my experience in the space has been that people are open to this more so 
than let's say my experiences in previous industries. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, I, I find that in general with most startups, um, you know, everybody's, there's a lot of co-opetition going on and there's a lot of uh, mutual leveraging because uh, frankly, they're looking at their, they're looking at their development timeline and saying, we're not gonna be able to get to something like this for a very long time. So we can either, you know, lose business to it or we could essentially partner with someone. So it makes a lot of sense. And it's, uh, it's interesting you said there about the, um, about everybody kind of getting sharper in, in this bear market for it. There's a really good argument towards bubbles being long-term beneficial, especially in new industries, simply because now, you know, it clears out the speculators and the people looking for a quick buck because God knows they probably cashed out already. Uh, I'm not sure where the price is today, but it, it ain't pretty compared to where it used to be. But the difference is everybody who sticks around, you know, they have a vested interest in success, right? So you guys are, you know, the, I'm sure that the easy days of people throwing money at you are, are a little bit gone now. And, and now it's more so how do we actually build solid businesses and, and build out the ecosystem that we said was, was possible? Because only if it becomes real is this actually going to work. So, and if you look at what happened with the dot-com bubble in, uh, in the late 90s, you know, you had a lot of companies that survived that and had to figure out how to survive as companies. And a lot of them, you know, went from, for example, books to literally everything uh, right. in that duration, right? So, if it wasn't for that bubble, Amazon would have never started and a lot of other companies would have never started and we wouldn't be where we are today in so many ways. So, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, there's something to be said for, for getting a bunch of people to throw skin in the game and, and, and getting stuck there. So, uh, yeah, 100%, 100%. Pressure yeah. yeah. makes diamonds. Yeah, it's funny because if you look now at a lot of the things that are that are doing incredible, like a lot of the unicorns now, uh, things like, you know, delivery of everything or dispatch cars or pet food or whatever. Like, honestly, a lot of these companies were ideas that existed in the late 90s, just they hadn't figured out logistics, supply chain, ecosystem, like infrastructure. And now those those failed companies we laughed at are all billion dollar ideas. So I can see <laughs> yeah. the same thing happening in the crypto sphere in 10 years if it continues the way it's going. So. No, I, I, th I think you're spot on. I think that's the, the, you know, the right way to look at it. I do, I do feel that the excitement of the, of the bubble draws in a lot of eyeballs. Naturally, there's going to be good and bad coming in. Yeah. And uh, you need the, the winter, right, to weed out the bad things. And, and the guys who are truly in it for the long run, you know, they act differently. Uh, they act differently yep. during the bull markets. They act differently during the bear markets. I distinctly remember, you know, as we were going through the bull market, the questions that we had were, you know, we, people come up to us and ask us, why aren't you guys doing an ICO? And that was a big question, right? Because back then- Because you don't want to be one of the ones that's going to be bankrupt in 12 months. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. but, but back then, it was a harder thing to defend, right? Like yeah, hindsight's so. 2020. Right now, we're able to defend it and say, thank God we didn't do it. I mean, Chris, even, the, even HBO's uh, Silicon Valley, they did an ICO. Like it was just, it was so topical. Like <laughs> It was a big, call it temptation for many people that could just get, you know, this whole idea that you could have raised money without giving up equity and that people were just willingly giving it to you, to some was just, people weren't asking the right questions. They were just saying, they were, why don't you? Our response the real, the real was- question is, why would you? Right, and so our angle was, I don't, you know, until we figure this out, like, you know, someone's gonna get hurt here because you're not protecting anybody. So sure enough, people got hurt. And, uh, you know, nowadays you're going to do an ICO and it's just as much work as doing a registered security offering. So what's it's really well, and as it should, because, you know, you can argue like it wasn't a security, but like, you know, I'm sorry, it looked and smelled like a security. Oh. So get over it. Yeah. The, um, yeah. It's we funny. Can go high. I, I actually, I actually <laughs> saw an academic paper. I think was he, I think the, the gentleman was out of university of California or something like that. And anyway, it was on returns on ICOs. 
And surprisingly enough, the average return on an ICO over 12 months was actually positive. However, and this is hilarious, the median return was 100% loss. So <laughs> the edge case cases that made like that went from zero to God knows what those edge cases made so much money that it made the entire pool valuable, even though the, va the, the odds were that you had like a two thirds chance of, of being at zero in, in the first year. It was like the worst possible scenario, venture cap type fund that, you know, you're hoping that the one or two big ones saves you if you invested in everything, but odds are you picked one of the two thirds that went to zero. Yeah, and I, and I, and I will say, I mean, that right now, nobody, nobody really knows how it's, it's gonna shake down south of the border, because I think that's gonna, Cue in a lot of regulatory enforcement. Most, a lot of people are just waiting to see yeah. how the U.S. regulators are going to do it. I do think they are going to get to right now. My my thought or my view is that they're going through or they're going at the first call it openly scams that you know open you know, people that That's have a, exactly. But I do feel that enforcement will make its way through everybody or most of the people who, who you know essentially broke yeah. the rules. Yeah, I love these. I love these cases right now. I mean, even isn't I think isn't uh, isn't Fifty Cent involved in one of them? Like some rappers involved in one of them. I love this because I remember back when you know everything was on fire and regulation was like the f word. Like you didn't want to hear it. Like <laughs> it was. And, and, you know, I always and I, I always had the same saying when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, it's all fun and games until people lose money. Then the pitchforks come out, and that's the end of it. And then everybody's like, "Well, government, where you shouldn't have been before. Why weren't you there protecting me?" It's like, oh God. We never, yeah, we never. No, learned. exactly. And we're, you know, we're saying, oh, okay, well, don't worry, we're gonna go to Malta, and they'll never get to us. <laughs> like, oh yes, we, we well, don't. Really, <laughs> oh yeah, we're we're licensed, though we incorporated in Gibraltar. Like what? Come on. Yeah, like the honey badger don't care, and I think you know the, the honey badger. I, I call the SEC is like the honey badger. They really don't care where you are. They don't care. You're defrauding. I mean, here's the thing: if, if the American, if the IRS could work with the U.S. government to crack open the Swiss banking system like a walnut. What hope right. do you think you have anywhere else? Like, I mean, honestly. Right. No, no, and 100%. It's, and so I think the, the decision back then that, that we made as a company was to say, we're not going to take the easy way. We never have. And I think that's something that comes through when you see our materials or even just come to our offices and come, come talk to us. From the beginning, we took the approach of, hey, if someone's going to come and create a bridge between this new traditional, this new digital asset class and the traditional banking system, it's got to be someone that can talk and respect both sides yep. and understand both sides. Agreed. And I think one of, one of the unique skill sets that we had as a group and as a team now, because we've been adding just a tremendous amount of incredibly smart people to our team, but even at the early beginnings, I had, having been in Venezuela and having had some, some more entrepreneurial you know, experience under my belt, I had a really good sense of who was using Bitcoin, what they wanted out of Bitcoin, and how this could really affect their lives. And on the flip side of that, Adam, my Levin's co-founder, had a tremendous experience working in large publicly traded companies here in Canada and structuring equity and debt deals with you know, the biggest investment banks and, and Fortune 500 companies. And so we knew how we could call it understand and respect both sides. And I think that it was our belief that when we came to raise the funds, they would have to be from high quality institutions. Just that was the only way we were gonna be able to build momentum. And mm -hmm. our approach when we went to them was, we're gonna be entirely compliant. You can expect absolutely no funny business from our operations. We don't wanna be uh, fractional reserve lenders. 
we are not going to take any shortcuts. We're basically, if it takes us, you know, six months to figure out how to take security on a Bitcoin so that investors are comfortable, we'll take the six months. We're not going to lend out without perfecting that. And I think that's what continues to make our current investors happy, inspire future investors that are interested in our company and ourselves as a team, right? Because I think everybody here knows that we are respectful, fully compliant, and there's absolutely no fear in anyone or, or call it regulatory uncertainty around what we do because we, we tried to you know, get that really well. We knew that was our only shot. So before we wrap up, I have a couple of questions I ask everybody. So the first one is, uh, if you had one wish for something you could change in the industry or your company, what would it be? Other than the Bitcoin price going back to 19000 uh, If there was one thing I could change, if it relates to, uh, to Bitcoin and the industry, I'll have to think a little bit about it. If it came to like how things have gone down, I would probably say, if I could change one thing, would be that Chavez and, and corruption and communism <laughs> never to Venezuela. <laughs> that is, uh, you know what? That is the best, most unique answer I've had thus far. So, <laughs> um, fair enough. So that, that, would, that would be me. I mean, it, it, has, it has taught me personally a lot of things, uh, and I feel like I've grown and I'm a better person because of the, the things that have happened since. But it just put, I just had to witness so much pain and, and suffering mm -hmm. And just so many families break apart that I, you know, I don't, I don't wish anyone to have to see that in their lifetime. And you know, I, I say, I usually say it's a bit bittersweet because this devastation is really what made me realize very much how important and necessary Bitcoin was for us as a society. Because, and especially once I left Venezuela and I entered this this beautiful country and, and economy and, and, and society that is Canada, you can become so enclosed in all your success and abundance or wealth where you just ignore or kind of shut down the edge cases of people that are, might be suffering or in, in yeah. bad situations that you can't really see because you can't identify with them. And another thing that I've seen is how much better authoritarian regimes have gotten at controlling media, even despite social media. They just have this tight grip on everything that gets released or everything that makes the rounds outside of their ecosystem, or outside of, they, they control that narrative so well mm. that people in these types of countries don't even know they have to question things, no. right? And so, you know, again, you know, just to tie it back to your original question, you know, it, it, it's incredibly bittersweet. And I, you know, I think it did, we made the best of it as we could. But that's what I would change from a from a Fair personal enough. life experience. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you have you have a different purpose to the reason why you got involved in this, and it's uh, it's one of the cases that's discussed. But it's very nice to talk to someone who actually lived that use case. Uh, it's, it's it's insightful, and it, uh, it it teaches us a lot of of how <laughs> something as something as uh, as abstract as distributed ledger systems can actually impact society. So. <laughs> It's, it's, I, it's funny coming out of my mouth, but it, it's true. No, no, 100%. And you know what? I have huge, huge respect for the people that can be in an environment like Canada and have the level of empathy that it takes to sort of understand that use case. Because it's not a, it's not a natural exercise for you to think. Because, I mean, I actually was, I continue to be impressed at, a, the fact that Bitcoin was a technology that arguably originated around North America and, and it was originated by highly qualified cryptographers and people that didn't really live in Venezuela or these authoritarian regimes. They just, they just knew that that was a, a great thing to do. 
But uh, I, I continue to be impressed by the people who understand the use case of Bitcoin in Venezuela and are excited about it. Because uh, you know, that takes a, a, an additional layer of you know, mental exercise to put yourself in those shoes and to see how it can really make a difference, right? Yep. And it's interesting. I, I often say we're, you know, when I hear that critique, I, I turn it around on people and say, it's nice that you think that you're in a stable currency. But frankly, I would argue that a currency that goes from like 60 cents to a dollar 10 and then back down to 75 isn't exactly stability. <laughs> No, no, I was just going to say, don't get me started on the Canadian dollar volatility, man, because I, yeah. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's something that it's, it's amazing how we basically, you know, we'll watch the currency quite avidly, but then we'll still consider our currency very stable. It's just kind of a bizarre, you know, lack of connection to the human brain in this country where people just fail to realize that, no, we're actually a lot more volatile than you realize. It may not be day to day, but man, some of these swings are pretty brutal. I'm with you. And I, I actually was in an import-export business for a bit here in Canada before I started working in Bitcoin. And I distinctly remember going through 20% up-down cycles on the Canadian dollar. And as, as a wholesaler, import I was importing from a manufacturer in China, and yeah. I had credit terms on my invoices outstanding. And within you know, a 20% move on the loonie would effectively wipe the returns of an entire year. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I still remember being in university, and we did we did exercises in in um, some of the investment classes where we would price out the purchase. Well, this was on Nortel back in the day because that's how old I am now. But we would price out like at its peak that if you had bought it at a certain level and the stock had this wild increase, well, you still lost money because of the move in the currency. And, right. Yeah, it's it's not, and we're not talking unrealistic moves. They were very realistic. Anyway, so the next question I have is, what's been the biggest challenge in uh, in starting or running this company? The biggest challenge. I would have to say was in the early days when we were first starting to talk to investors and getting them comfortable around the idea that this was an asset worth lending against. I would say the biggest challenge was dealing with uh, 2018's volatility. It was happening simultaneously. As we were raising these rounds, you were having very big moves in Bitcoin, both up and down, mostly down because it was 2018. And then as it continued to fall, it just kept, it, it continues to test your commitment and not necessarily your commitment because your commitment can be spot on, but you have to be so poised and so together to basically just focus on the long-term opportunity as we were presenting this. And uh, I think the, the biggest challenge, but you know, we're, we're very fortunate. We have amazing, an amazing group of investors in the seed round, but they just were incredibly good at you know, sticking through and believing in the model and believing in, in myself and Adam, as we were just explaining that there was a use case and that this asset class was a something that was going to hopefully outlive all of us, right? Like it's just going to be something that's going to stick around for a long time and that there is a real use case for it. So I would say the biggest challenge was convincing people that we were going to be able to A, take security on this asset and do it at a sufficient level of risk that they were comfortable with. I have no doubt that there must have been some soul searching uh, throughout those uh, days of volatility, wondering if <laughs> this is what you really wanted to do with your life. And my favorite Bitcoin joke still has to be the son goes to his father and asks him for a Bitcoin. Father says, $15,000, that's a lot of money. What are you going to do with $12,000? You know, $16,000 is in grow on trees. hundred <laughs> <laughs> yeah. percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So final question before we wrap up. So the next last question is what about what you're doing or what you're working on, you know, is excites you the most, what gets you up every morning to, to basically go out and experience and, and to keep doing what you're doing? 
I will. This is actually going to be a that that's that's a very good question. I really I really like how you frame that. My favorite thing about what I do and about what our company does is this fact that for the first time in as far as I know human history, we have this new asset class that is really borderless, and the fact that if I own this, I can now own this asset anywhere in the world. And by owning that asset, I have access to financial services and flexibility and liberties that anyone else in the world would have. And so said differently, I think what excites me the most is the fact that we can treat now clients from all over the world as one. And we can offer them the exact same suites and offerings. And because one of the things that I feel is, is really something we really need to work on as a society is the uneven distribution of opportunity around our, you know, just around how we are organized. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I do feel that there are people of some places in the world that are born with a disproportionate amount of opportunity just by virtue of where they were born. And as we become increasingly more connected, we need to erode those barriers. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the two lotteries you win are who your parents are and where you're born, basically. Those are the ones you get, you get a birth. But the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, we, we take for granted in Western society just how much basic banking structure and accessibility to said banking structure can make a huge difference in people's lives. And, you know, micro lending won a Nobel Prize just for that very principle, right? It was the ability to give people access to capital at, at rates were, that were not extortionate, but reasonable. And, you know, it's transformed any number of communities because of it. So I agree with you. I think that there is enormous potential to further that kind of effort as things move along. And it's one of these things where I, I honestly, it's one of these, it's kind of an interesting paradigm. And while this is being spent, well, most people spend most of their time in, in this space in developed markets talking about, you know, the use cases and building companies around it. The real use cases, the real adoption in my mind is probably going to happen first and foremost in the countries where their currency is basically at risk because what are your options? US dollars, gold, or Bitcoin. And frankly, one of them has significant friction. The other one may have significant limitations on accessibility. Well, both of them have accessibility limitations. And the third can be done from your cell phone. So it's, um, it's going to be yeah. interesting to see how, how different economic crises around the world in the future to come, how they play out and how the role of blockchain is going to, going to, basically, world blockchain is going to play in that. I absolutely agree. I think we're right now at uh, staring at potentially a new change in the dynamics of, of how some of these, how money is used. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love the most about this whole phenomenon is that it's got people wondering what money actually is. And it's got people actually wondering because people, you know, people will say things to you like, well, Bitcoin isn't real. Where is your Bitcoin? I have my dollars in my bank account. I'm like, are your dollars? No, in you don't. You have, a, you, have, you, have a, you have a ledger entry just like Bitcoin. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's, it's really, it really plays with people's heads who never stop to question it. And it, it really shakes them sometimes. And with that, we're going to have to wrap up. Mauricio, thank you very much for your time. This was, uh, this was insightful, not just for your company, but also just the, the larger discussion of uh, crypto and, and, and its impact on the society. So I thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, Jason. It was a lovely, lovely chat. So that was my interview with Maurizio Di Partolomeo. I hope you enjoyed that. Also, hope you enjoyed the discussion about how uh, Bitcoin can basically be of enormous value to countries where currency is less than stable as we are seeing in Venezuela right now. And with that, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. Take care.
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.